Welcome to the Weave Your Bliss podcast. I'm your host, Paula Crossfield, a Vedic astrologer and business coach helping you to live in your purpose. And that is what this podcast is all about. So let's jump right in to the conversation. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Weave Your Bliss. I'm Paula Crossfield. And I'm so thrilled that you are here. If you are new, welcome, welcome. I am a business coach and Vedic astrologer helping my clients and you live in your purpose. And that is really the key here on this podcast. We're sharing the stories of people who really are living in their purpose, how they got there, answering the big questions of life. So I'm glad that you're here. Today, I have a wonderful guest. Dr. Nicole Tetro is a compassionate neuroscientist, author, meditation teacher, and international speaker on topics of neurodiversity, neurodevelopment, creativity, mental health, and wellness. Her book, Insight into a Bright Mind, explores groundbreaking research examining the experiences of unique, creative, and intense brains through interviews, storytelling, and literary science while advocating for new directions of human diversity and neurodiversity. So Nicole also leads a new generation of meditation practices by fusing novel discoveries in neuroscience with the ancient lineage of Asian meditation. And as a recipient of the Milton Career Exploration Prize from Caltech, she founded the novel nonprofit Beyond the Cell, a transformative program to rehabilitate incarcerated women through guided meditation, neuroscience, literature, and expressive writing. Nicole believes we have the ability to wire our minds for positive plasticity through compassion and wisdom and live the life we dream. She's based in Los Angeles, and you can find out more on her website, NicoleTetro.com. It's all in the show notes, and you can also find a link to get her book there. We go into so much juicy material here. I think it's going to excite you. We talk about creativity and how to create the optimum conditions based on neuroscience for our brain to be in a creative state. We talk about love-based versus fear-based emotions and how to get into the former and out of the latter. So there's so much here that you can actually turn and put into practice right away. I'm so blessed to have Nicole as a client. And we talk a little bit about her working with me and how she's uh, enjoyed that. I hope you enjoy. Before we jump right in though, I want to make sure that you are on my newsletter list so that you are receiving my Friday Resonance Love Letters. These are emails I send out on big ideas, on big thoughts that are going on in business right now, how to apply astrology to your business, questions you should be asking yourself right now. It really is like a mini coaching session with me. In addition to that, you can get on that list by going to the show notes and signing up for my mini course on the planets and your business. This is a very small bite of each planet so that you can start to see how these planets are interacting through you and moving you in different directions in the world and start to understand how those energies work. It's a really powerful short course and it's totally free. And all you have to do is go to the link in the show notes and sign up. Okay. I'm so excited to share this interview with Nicole and I hope that it really sparks some ideas and some positive changes in your life. Hi, Nicole. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Paula. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you. 
because I feel like your work is so important. And we've been talking for a while about how you can apply what you know as a neuroscientist to how we can live a better life. So I'm excited to get into that. What I would love to start with, though, is if you could just talk a little bit about what drew you to neuroscience in the first place. Yeah. Well, for me, the story is a little bit of a long one. When I was 18, um, my mom was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. And upon that, I was sort of a biology slash um, right, uh, uh, literature major. I was sort of going to double major. And then I really shifted to go into neuroscience because I really wanted to understand what was happening with her. My first instinct was I wanted to create medications to prolong her life. So it was really like, how can I save her? And over the course of when I began to study neuroscience, what I really learned was that there was a lot of discrepancy in what the latest research was showing and what was in your standard doctor's office. And so I really felt like I wanted... And and really, scientifically, by the time somebody's researching something, it really takes about seven years before it's to the public. And so for me, I was in my final year of my PhD. Um, and concurrently, my mother was really in the late stages of Parkinson's disease, where all of these brilliant scientists have been working on cures and neuroprotective mechanisms, which really weren't cutting it. And science had become really, in a lot of ways, my, I would almost say like my spiritual destiny, like in a lot of ways. Once a week, I was taking my mother a meal. You know, I would worry so much, you know, on a graduate student's budget, like getting her the most expensive, highest quality food, because that was one of the things I could still do with her in the later stages. There was this time where I was sitting there and much of what I was operating off of what I didn't really recognize was off of anxiety. Even the idea to find a cure or have the most novel medications was really at the core of my experience was fear of holding on into attaching to her into a way that I wanted it to be, which it no longer was. And so that was a really kind of rude awakening. And as I was preparing her food, nervously, really full of pent up anxiety, she just said, come and sit. And as we sat down, she looked in my eyes and she goes, I know. I know. That's when I broke and tears streamed. And I really realized that it was my first doorway into learning to sit with what was. And it was like my doorway into meditation where she, all she wanted, she didn't care about the food. She didn't care about the quality. She just wanted me to sit with her. And that really pushed me. I wouldn't say pushed me, but it was really the doorway that led me into really choosing to partake actively in a meditative practice every day and to really be aware of what I was dealing with. It was a doorway into the okayness of the mystery, the okayness of not knowing. At the time, I didn't know. It was just like, okay, get your ass down and sit down and just quiet the mind. It really changed my experience because when I finished my PhD, my mother really only had three months left to live. And I turned down a job in academia 
I really transitioned my entire profession to really translate and communicate the most promising neuroscience in honor of her. And so it's sort of the both and where kind of merging the gifts that we have with creative science and the gifts we have with walking the path of suffering and how to alleviate it. And so that's where that's kind of what brought me into neuroscience and sort of a deeper feeling of wanting to really help people. Yeah. And it seems like you've evolved a lot because now one of your titles is as a meditation teacher. So, you know, maybe you can talk about what you found in the science around this that made you just decide that you would move towards more experiential, like, let's actually do this rather than just talk about it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. In the research, what we know is there's been over 16,500 papers <laughs> on meditation and mindfulness and the benefits to reduce stress, anxiety, really alleviate post-traumatic stress disorder, really help people with concentration and focus, you know, and that really is like the hallmark of what these ancient Asian practices have been. We sort of have adapted the word meditation and our vocabulary in terms of westernizing it. And really, when we think about meditation and you break it down and you think of way the, you know, five slash six ways that Emily and Vince Horn really talk about it at Buddhist Geeks, they describe it first as concentration, mindfulness, awareness, inquiry, heartfulness, and then devotional practices that lead to embodiment. And so it's sort of really kind of what doorway do you want to go into isn't going to harm you. The really cool thing, though, that I just read about yesterday that kind of blew my mind was reading about chanting practices and how they actually activate different brain areas than standard meditation. So in standard meditation, when we think about brain waves and getting into a flow state, they really activate this default mode network, which is your dream state kind of network where you're kind of in this liminal space of consciousness and being in dream state. And that really has these alpha waves related to it that kind of enhance creativity and, and kind of have this concentration element to it. The contrary kind of happens, not really contrary, but in chanting practices, it really activates these delta waves in a different part of the brain called the posterior cingulate cortex which is really important for sort of regulating yourself and actually letting go of what you think you are and coming into oneness. Scientifically, when you just think about how these practices work, I think it's pretty phenomenal when you think about the energy and the way the vibration could change physiologically in the mind. But what was even cooler is that they showed that really in meditative practices and in chanting, chanting is a form of meditation, but in these practices, that actually it helps regulate the heart rate. And that happens through a release of positive neurochemicals known as oxytocin and vasopressin, which really allow for dilation of blood vessels for blood to flow more easily 
And it really, oxytocin is really important for um, pair bonding and trust. So literally when you begin to meditate and you begin to chant, you move the brain out of a fear state and you move into a more love-based state and you come into more trust and a greater awareness of yourself and others. And so to me, that's kind of a remarkable, I mean, it's mystical. and It's like, how are we touching on this? It just kind of blows me away when you think about how we can really shift our awareness and that these practices not only do it through brain networks, but also through practice. Scientifically, we know just 60 days, average of 60 days, you can rewire new patterns, a a thing called neuroplasticity, where we can really shift these thinking patterns into more love-based states rather than fear. Another study came out. <laughs> You're going to be like, why did we open up this door? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, this is a lot of what I wanted to talk about. So you're, you're answering a lot of my questions in advance. So we're just going to have to go deeper. So yeah. it's all good. <laughs> but what's really cool is um, one study showed that chanting in itself naturally reduces fear. And I mean, I just think like the simplicity of getting yourself to just sit down and do the practice is the step. I was a runner in, in high school and, you know, a lot of was like, just get the running shoes on. Once you get the running shoes on, then you're out the door. Yeah. So when we talk about practices, it can be a lot of different things. It's not just sitting down and like observing your breath, which is the kind of basic meditation, right? Yeah. So it can be like all these different things, chanting, Kriya even doing a yoga practice, maybe even running, like what would you say? All of what you said. Honestly, I think really anything that gets you out of your critical mind and gets you out of that judgment mind, it could be simply walking in nature. Um, You know, scientifically, they show that these things called all walks, actually the opposite of taking in the environment. It's externally focusing on nature and how nature can be healing. What you're saying, like meditatively cooking, it's where you find that's kind of an element of embodiment when we talk about a meditative practice. You know, for me, I think my biggest meditation, I was in I was out in Nepal and we were meditating with um, bun monks for a week and we came down and our teacher just brought us in the middle of Kathmandu, which is vastly wild than sitting on your cushion. Sitting on your cushion, you know, in silence is really great to cultivate and practice the mind, but it's how do you enter the world and how do you walk through the world When you come in through a state of being overwhelmed with too many people or having to decide to purchase something or save your money or what is the most conscious decision to make in that moment. And so it's the way that you bring the practice into your daily life. You know, for me, I have a teenage son. (laughs) (laughs) The biggest thing is with him, how do I maintain a compassionate mindset when he may be talking to me really harshly and those sort of things. But, you know, as you mentioned, yes, standard practices of, you know, sitting and focusing on your breath, focusing on your awareness. 
a yoga practice. I mean, I think we so forget how yoga is a moving meditation in the sense that you're really moving stuck energies, you know, and everything is about storing energy in your body. I think of it in a, in a really simple way. You know, when I, I lead a meditation and I just focus on a single word and ask, where do you feel that word in your body? You know, because we store stories, emotions, and a single word in our body that could really shift our physiology and our awareness. And so it's that noticing and, and waking up, you know, in my personal practice, I do social meditation um, is another form where I do that through Buddhist geeks, where we actually socially meditate together and we note our states, our mental states, our emotional states. We note our physical states. How are the ways that you practice? I do similar things because we met on a chanting retreat in, in Baja with Krishna Das. So chanting, movement, being in nature because we have this beautiful property is, is one way. And I haven't done a like a firm sitting practice in a while where it's like the same time every day and I'm like sitting on the cushion in the same spot. That's very helpful. And I feel like maybe I should go back to it, but I haven't been doing that in a while. So I feel like it's kind of, it's infused my life. And a lot of what you're talking about, it's like a reminder that we've got to always be kind of tuning into that. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little more about love-based and fear-based emotions. Like what are these and how do we cultivate a positive mind state? Like if we're in a negative emotion, like fear. So really, you know, Buddhist psychology and philosophy focuses on negative-based and positive-based emotions. And I look at it as more as love-based and fear-based emotions in the sense that no emotion is necessarily negative or positive. Um, it's right. That's a valence you're putting on it through the judging mind. And so cultivating kind of more of a love-based state really focus on I feel um, the practices of Buddhist philosophy of the Brahma Viharas, focusing on compassion, loving awareness, equanimity, and sympathetic joy, truly feeling joy for somebody else's positive experience. The counter of schadenfreude, I think, that so much of our society is built upon, which falls in the fear-based category. And when I really was beginning to kind of delve into this, you know, scientifically, UC Berkeley scientists found that there's 27 based emotions that people experience all the way from joy, anger, gratitude, sadness, and they categorized these 27 basic emotions and looked at the duration of how long emotion lasted and how and what individuals did to kind of work through their emotion. And so, for example, in the study, they found fear lasts 40 minutes. And I think that is something that's really important to pay attention to, that we've been trained to add the story around fear to have that emotion prolonged. When we think about sort of fear-based emotions, when I think about it in general, it's ways that we really shut down our intuition, 
When we get into a fear-based state, whether it be anxiety or guilt-based or what we want to quote unquote say negative emotions would be, when we get into that mind state, we're really operating off of instincts and we're not really focusing on natural intuition. Now, when we're in a love-based state, for example, and we're compassionate, intuition is right at our fingertips. It's right there for us. And when we operate off of these, we kind of shift into that state of trust, greater connection with others, um, less sense of othering, and less sort of the experience that you're the only one that's suffering, that there's the awareness that everybody suffers. For me, it is really, I would say, inspired by the work of Ram Dass, which is holding everything in loving awareness and his, you know, main teaching from Maharaji that when we can come to whatever scenario that we're in through love, whether it be suffering, there is that softening around that edge where a very simple example, when I was dealing with my mom's later stages and really being with her in their last three months of transitioning from this physical world, coming at it from love and wanting to be there for whatever she was experiencing, regardless if she could no longer have speech, that was the space of coming at it from love rather than fear and trying to manipulate it and tell her how to speak or how to be. Thank you for sharing that. I think that's powerful. Um, so one thing I would love to hear from you, what is happening in our brain when we're chanting, when we're meditating, like when we're in those love-based states, what's happening? And you can like tell us in scientific language, but explain like, what does, what do those things mean? I think it's interesting because if we know that, then we're like consciously trying to stimulate those things to happen. Yeah. Well, I think the scientific level, the chant itself, like is a vibration. Physiologically, there's a vibration and a current that is going not only through our mind, but through our body and beyond us. When we chant, we're not only chanting for our liberation, but we're chanting for everybody's liberation. And in that vibration, it's carried. I think about it in the most simple sense of um, Tenzin Wangle Rinpoche, you know, talks about energy. And he has such a beautiful way where he talks about how there's so many energies that we have coming by us. And we have a choice in our awareness to pick up a negative energy or let it just drop and fall away. When I think about chanting, I think about it as a vibrational frequency kind of being carried through the ether that we're collectively creating, calling in, invoking the intention of a higher being to relieve us from our suffering. And on a scientific level, you know, when we begin to start thinking about what's happening in the brain, the coolest thing that they show is that in live performances of musicians and the audience where chanting is a call and response, that basically brains of participants and musicians have synchrony in their brainwaves. And participants where 
they're, they feel more connected and they feel that sense of oneness that their brains are more synchronized with other people. So literally we're beginning to have brain waves that have shared firing and shared consciousness. The other really kind of cool element when we think about it is that as we begin to chant, areas in the brain that are activated show a sense of oneness. So where they've identified oneness in the brain, in research, they show that that's activated when you're chanting. It's so cool. And it just makes me, you know, you use the word magnetize or magnetic, like there's something about that that draws people in. I think you said that you're that love based emotions. When we're in that state, we feel connected and we want to be around people who are in those states. That's a really cool. I love all of that, you know, and just thinking about all the brain waves moving together, like while you're all chanting together is really beautiful. And I mean, sorry to get more geeked out, but The other really cool thing is that we know we have these neurons in our brain called mirror neurons, and they're in dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which is really important part of our brain for morality, intuition, connectedness, reducing your um, fear, more in tune communication. And they show that basically through meditation practices, this area of the brain begins to expand. These mirror neurons, which are really cool, for example, are activated during empathy. And so that is kind of one other area that we're kind of really working on is how can we just come to our daily life with more compassionate awareness. And when we do that, that's what's so interesting, you know, with Bhakti is to me, it's these heart-centered practices where people have that open heart. And I think we think about Buddhist philosophy. It has that ability for us to learn to train our mind to get into the heart state. You know, you incline the mind toward the heart. With these mirror neurons, that would be another element where we're beginning to have that synchrony of experiencing not just only our experience, but experiencing with others and really being with others. How does this relate to creativity? Because I know you like to think and talk about creativity as well. So can you tell us a little bit more about how we can utilize these tools or understanding to help us get into creative states or create practices around them or anything? Yeah, well, meditation is actually one of the five elements that are really important for cultivating a creative mind state. You know, meditative practices, like I said, activate these alpha waves in the brain, which are very similar to when one experiences flow state during that creative aha moment. And so on that element, it really works. But on another element, it's really important because it reduces fear. So many artists, so many creative people doubt themselves. And I think, you know, as we were talking about the different types of meditation, reducing fear and concentrating the mind, but also the awareness of inquiry that it's a mystery and we don't know what we're doing here. You know, what is all this? <laughs> you know, what are Paula and Nicole doing right now? <laughs> you know? um, and so it kind of opens up 
to that layer of not knowing and the okayness about it. For me, meditation and creativity really are are one of the same. You know, I definitely think in a devotional practice, you're evoking a deeper connection with everything in the universe. And I really think that every person has creative potential and ability. And at the same time, thinking about each one of us has our own biological and karmic imprint where we're meant to share stories creatively with one another to help each other. What was it that you were telling me about when we were talking about this podcast about the stages of creativity, about getting into flow states? Can you share that? I think people will really enjoy that. Yeah. So, I mean, there's five stages of a standard kind of creative process that they've put out there. And really preparation. And to me, I don't think it's just preparation, but it's practice where you really are in the area that you're interested in creatively pursuing. So whether it be music, you listen to musicians and you kind of copy them um, or authors, you know, my very young years. And and I still, you know, authors that I admire, like Oliver Sacks and Mary Oliver, I try to emulate them that I just admire so much. And it's really that researching phase and practicing phase. And then there's this incubation phase that happens where all of a sudden, you're kind of seeing what your individual synthesis of how you think in an artful way merges. And this is where kind of things are whirling around. I kind of call it like organized chaos, right? Where you're in this daydreaming mode and you're really kind of... you're, And this is kind of this incubation phase. You know, I kind of hold a lot of projects that I don't talk with anybody about because sometimes their input can be overwhelming or it could cause you to stop. So one of my writing teachers, Pam Houston, would say, you know, this is that phase. It's like that tender kind of calling your baby. The next phase really is insight where you get that aha moment where all of a sudden you realize like, oh, this is a novel way to do things. Nobody else has really done it that way. And you begin... And this this isn't something that, you know, you're like on your cushion and you're like, aha, I have that moment. It's more like you're in the shower, or you're putting dishes in the dishwasher or hand washing them, um, where all of a sudden, or maybe you wake up in the middle of the night and you're like, I have to write this down. And it's not legible in your journal the next day, but you know what you meant. And then there's the stage of evaluation where you kind of really check yourself and see the novelty about it. In this stage, that's where that critical judgment mind comes in. And it was sort of when I wrote my first book where I was like, Oh, this is horrible. This is terrible. And, (laughs) (laughs) and it was like, what was I thinking? How could I think I have done this? And that imposter syndrome kind of comes in and that evaluator and, and really what I have to say when people think, Oh, this isn't novel or I'm not adding anything. Just being you and the presence of who you are. Um, and what your karma and your genetic imprint needs to tell us, we need to hear it. And then finally is the elaboration phase where it's really the sweat phase where you kind of perspire and really get it done and commit to it. And so that's kind of, those are kind of the stages of creativity. 
when we think about ways to increase our creativity, there's a, a handful of things we could do there too. Yeah, please tell us. You were telling me those too, and those were really cool. Yeah. So what they found scientifically is working with our hands for 15 minutes a day. And you think about that like in our early ancestors, right? They would do a lot of weaving, a lot of basket weaving, a lot of clay building. And so working with your hands could be as simple as washing the dishes as all the way to sewing, cooking, but really working with your hands is a way that it kind of naturally frees the mind and opens up creativity. One thing that I know you love to do and that you are that you do is going into nature for 20 minutes a day. So when you're really kind of in nature, that allows that it it does a couple of things. So first of all, nature naturally reduces stress and it increases positive neurochemicals. So you just have anti-inflammatory processes happening. You have really kind of connecting with greenery, just being in a park for 20 minutes. Like you don't even have to walk. You could just be in a green space for 20 minutes and that will naturally reduce your stress response and it increases your level of enjoyment. And then as we've been talking about with meditation, that really kind of opens up a portal of creativity where you reduce stress and that judgment mind. Also, you know, depending on the stage of your meditative practice, you know, it could really, if you're in a devotional state, it could bring you closer to um, your guides and your beings that can naturally um, kind of help you in your creative process. This is kind of a no-brainer, but it's kind of obvious. Practicing the type of art you're interested in for at least 15 to 20 minutes a day. So if you want to write, really write for 15 or 20 minutes a day. Give yourself that time. If you want to paint, really just sit down and practice that art form. And then, um, and then really scientifically, we know exercise, but it's not even it's beyond exercise. It's really being in your body. For 30 minutes a day, I think so much of the time we're stuck at our desk looking at computer screens that really moving your body increases natural endorphins. It kind of clears toxins out and it moves the energy around where you're not stuck. And so, yeah, we all need to get off our screens. (laughs) I feel like you just created a powerful morning practice for people who want to do creative pursuits. It's basically like meditate for a little bit, go outside and go for a walk in nature, do something with your hands and then sit down and start writing because you can be already in a flow state. Yeah, I think that's it. It sounds so simple. You know, I wish it's just easier to implement. But yeah, I think that's a good place to start. I'm excited to know the science. Another thing you told me recently was about the power of gratitude and how it lasts. I'm wondering if you could talk about that. Yeah. So this is kind of a... So in that study at UC Berkeley, you know, they cataloged how long an emotion would last. And they found that gratitude, you know, lasts five hours. Just practicing and saying three things you're grateful for can enhance that feeling of gratitude and appreciation. And it will shift your awareness. And if you think about that, like every five hours, if you just say... 
three things you're grateful for, that kind of would just shift you into that love-based state more naturally, really you simply. Could, you could even put it in your phone. You could have your phone just like ding every five hours during when you're awake and you could just be like, oh, three things I'm grateful for. Like, you know, Pavlov's dog, hear the bell and you you just immediately do it. So I think that's really cool. It would actually be kind of a really cool app to have mm-hmm. like where it dings and like you become part of a social network of what you're grateful for. And then it's sort of like this greater awareness where I think other people's elements of gratitude kind of would spark your own. I don't know. Let's make the app. (laughs) Yeah, let's do it. I just want to say for the audience, Dr. Nicole's book, Insight into a Bright Mind, is a lot of it is about neurodiversity and how to work with these different ways of being in the world. And as a person who was identified gifted and also ADHD, when I was a child, I was like, whoa, I feel so seen by this book. So if you are somebody who has neurodiverse kind of makeup, I highly recommend getting her book. And I'm wondering if you could just talk about brain prints, like this idea that we're all unique and that that's actually a strength. Yeah. So the coolest thing is, I mean, when we think about the umbrella of neurodiversity, The truth of the matter is it's about 20% of the population. So in a household of five people, there's going to be one person that'll be neurodiverse. (laughs) So, So I think that's one thing to open our awareness to. And usually when I was really coming at this... In the neurodiversity movement, there's really a a striving for um, diversity, equity, and inclusion, where so much of the issue, for example, that you even just said, for ADHD, it's like attention deficit disorder. Like, why are things disorder? And a lot of what I wanted to shape in the book is really the language around it, because the way we use language is so powerful. And if people are constantly sent the message that they're less than and society, they're not going to be operating from their highest best self. And so as I was doing all the research, David Glass and a few Glasser and a few other researchers really started to look at the brain and they designed this novel software. So they did an MRI study and they did brain mapping. And in this novel software, what they really found was that each individual had their very own brain print because they were able to parcelate out the different brain regions with like an accuracy and identify close to, I feel like 83 different brain regions. It was double the amount of brain regions that you know, I studied in graduate school. And so I was like, Oh, darn. But what they really found was that with like a 97% detection rate that each brain had its own brain print, and they could identify the brain print to an individual. And that really kind of lends to a couple of things. So for example, when we think about neurodiverse individuals, a lot of what I talk about is there is a strength in A, the different types of brain wiring and the different ways of experiencing and processing the world. And then B is that you're going to have the brain reflect what you see behaviorally in some ways. So for example... 
if you have a child who has elevated processing for sound, they're going to have parts of their brain that are primed and may have more volume, may have more surface area related to processing for sound. So auditory processing. And in that, sounds can be at a level of ecstasy and also excruciating pain. And so it's really that awareness that much of the time, for example, like we think a child's acting out or even adults may be acting out from a place of negativity. But in, in the core of that, anybody that's acting out at the core of it, they're suffering, whether it be emotional, physical, any sort of pain, they're suffering. And so identifying what that trigger for that suffering is, is a key component. And so when we think about these brain prints, you know, I like to offer that awareness for people to recognize that not only does their brain print, but their physiology and the way that they respond to the world is uniquely to them. And if they can become aware of any of their sensory experiences that may be overwhelming or emotional experiences, you know, sometimes words can be activating. So in a very interesting study, for example, they found people who have a higher level of verbal IQ, they have a greater rate of rumination, which totally makes sense, right? When you think about it, if you have somebody who is very good with words, and they know, perhaps every definition of a single word, they're going to have an intellectual element of the rumination that could also lead into an emotional element of the rumination and level of inquiry and doubt. And so when we begin to understand and unpack these things, it becomes a little bit more of in a meditative practice, like it just is rather than there's anything to fix or change or make different. It just is. And how do we kind of compassionately meet that awareness, meet somebody who may be less verbal on the outside to us, say they're on the autism spectrum and has an entire world of brilliance going on just because they don't communicate in the same way that we do. And so I think it's that tuning in and, and a big part of it too, for my mother's story, she became really nonverbal in her very last year quite a bit. For me, I knew there was so much more going on in my mother than what she was verbalizing. And I think that we kind of overemphasize verbal ability and we need to kind of slow down and you know, for example, like Leo Kanner was one of the first people who identified autism spectrum and evaluated 15 different children. And he called the cohort of them silently wisdom. You know, they had a silent wisdom to them. You know, I think it's sort of shaping our perceptions from a deficit-based model to a strength-based model and really seeing the beauty in all these different brain types. For people who are ADHD, they have a high level of creativity, immense amounts of creativity. When you're in a creative flow, I didn't really talk about this, but 
when you're in creativity, you have this imagination network going on, which is this default mode network, which is a very different network than your executive functioning network, which is problem solving and getting things done. And when you're in an imagination network, you're using a lot of energy. It just may not be seen because you're in your own mind, or you may be drawing it out or writing it out or thinking it out in your mind. And so I think there's a lot of missteps of what we think encapsulates intelligence or even creativity to that point. And, you know, even when we think about standardized tests, if you have a highly imaginative kid, standardized tests really operate off of a very specific brain model that's centered off of 28 very specific brain regions that all really have to do for operating quickly and answering questions, you know, with accuracy. And if you're in your imagination at work, those brain regions are going to be kind of, kind of a little more subdued. They're not going to be as active. And so it's just, what are we actually measuring? Well, so this podcast is largely about living in your purpose. And it sounds like you kind of have talked about how your purpose sort of unfolded through your mother's story and, you know, your story. But what does it mean to you if you were to talk about what it means to live in your purpose? It goes back to like my father. When I was really little, I emulated him. He was an aerospace engineer and he would get up every morning and work at the table having breakfast table having coffee. He always said to me, Nicole, whatever you do, just make sure it's something you love. And if you love what you do, you could show up every day and everything will fall into place. And so for me, a lot of what I do is how do I do what I do with love? If I'm in love with what I'm doing and it comes from a place of love, then I know deep down inside it, it can't be wrong. And so for me, it's sort of that falling in love with wherever I'm at. Even when, for example, my very first publisher passed away, it came down to, do I want to really write this book? And it came down to, I want to write this book because it's something that I want to share. Well, I'm grateful you wrote the book for one. (laughs) And I recommend everybody get it. I want to share just a little bit about Nicole's astrology because we've been working together for the past six months. I've gotten to know her chart and she has this fantastic combination of Venus and Jupiter exchanging from the first and the 12th houses. And so they're sorry, the second and 12th houses. So the second house is all about traditions and like earnings, but also family and history. And we've talked so much about family and about what you're holding, the knowledge that you're holding and and holding the traditions of meditation as well, Nicole. So it's just so cool. And then the 12th house is all about doing the practice and being out in the research, in the spiritual, actually doing the thing, right? And integrating those two. So it's really powerful to see how that comes through and like all the things that you've shared. And also you're ruled by Mars, Mars is in the 11th house, which is really nice for building community. And your moon is in Chitra, which is a beautiful placement too, ruled by Mars. Also good for precision and creating like systems and structures for people to understand things. So it's really cool. We've gotten to talk about that a bit over the time we've worked together. Has it been helpful for you to know more about your astrology? 
Oh my gosh. I feel like it's so amazing because I feel like it allows me to trust on a different level where being able to talk to you and have your input and your knowledge of what it means, like even just understanding like the elements of being K2 and like the not caring element or the detachment element, it's almost freed me, I feel in a lot of ways. Like it's helped me kind of make peace with like my karma and trusting like it's definitely put me in a trust space so much more. I just find it to be so valuable. I mean, I, wherever I go, I talk about you and I'm like, oh, my fr- I'm like my friend and my mentor and my astrologer and like, and I'm like, oh my <laughs> gosh, you have to meet her because she would know exactly what you're going through and what that means. And so I feel like it really helps me connect and trust in the spirit realm in a different way. Like it just makes like, the Dharma and the karma kind of come together. I don't know if that makes sense. No, it totally makes sense. And the K2 piece that Nicole's referring to is having K2 in the first house. So for those of you out there who have that, it allows you to be detached in a certain way from this reality and like be able to see it as a play, but also other people may project on you. So it's like something you have to kind of work with. And, you know, it can happen too, if you just have a lot of planets in, you know, with K2 or K2 is a period that you lived through. So yeah, it's been so beautiful getting to to go deep with you into this work and help you shape your business as well. And I also really loved, I mean, I also took your planets course and I just found that one just to hear all the different stories and the planets was just such a it was just so cool to think about the history behind it and the connection with that and then also the magnetic blueprint i have to say i love your uh yoga nidra meditations i they're just fantastic well thank you so i have a few rapid fire questions for you if you're ready for those just i'll do my best okay what is one piece of advice that's really helped you in your life A really good piece of advice that's helped me is my friend, Sam Christensen. I once asked him, how do you choose to collaborate with people? And he said, it has to be a collaboration of equals, which I really loved. Um, And he said, you know, that you're equally bringing something to the experience. And that has really helped me um, decide how to have partnerships. That was a really good piece of advice. So when you feel anxious, confused, or frustrated, what is the first thing you do to ground yourself? (laughs) I chant. (laughs) Do you just chant solo or do you like turn on some Krishna Das and chant along with him? Um, Sometimes I'll chant solo. Sometimes I'll turn on Krishna Das or I'll listen to Nina Rao. um, Mm -hmm. Some of the recordings. Nina Rao is really fantastic for the mother energy and Mm -hmm. um, pulling in that. So I, I have my favorite ones. I mean... If I really just need quick clarity, like just doing a series of sitarams kind of really helps. What is your favorite hot beverage? Double espresso. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) I've reduced my coffee intake and it makes it really special when I get coffee. So, Um, so last meal on earth. I think swimming in the ocean and chanting and my last gulp of anything would be chanting and ocean water or (laughs) seawater. 
do you have a morning routine and what part is non-negotiable for you? Yeah. I mean, every day I wake up and I meditate first thing and I write every morning. Every day I take about an hour walk, but that's flexible in the time. Do you write by hand? Like, does that count as using as the hand time that you're talking about? I do handwrite by hand, but I don't count that as my hand time. Cooking and washing dishes is... I love quaint washing dishes. So for me, it's just... I love writing in the morning in silence. Mm. I'm pretty much... My first two or three hours in the morning are silent. I love that. I enjoy that as well as much as I can. I mean, when you can. Of course, there are some things where people require me to be there and I, I show up. So tell us about a person who inspires you and why. Really... Maya Angelou has been quite an inspiration. I feel that her writing, the fact that she was a selective mute for five years because she suffered a traumatic event. You know, one of my favorite quotes of hers is, if you're always trying to be normal, you'll never know how amazing you could be. And it sort of marries with the idea of my mother used to always say the phrase, we're all a little crazy. (laughs) So (laughs) there's sort of just a a softening. You know, being dyslexic, Maya Angelou's book, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, it was the first book I read all the way through. And I read it like four times in a row. And it was my doorway into reading. I'll just always be grateful for her, for her um, beautiful prose are just timeless. I love that. So the next question is, what are you reading right now? Or what books would you recommend that people read? Like are the ones that you come back to again and again, or anything you'd like to share? Books. I love books. Um, One book that I just read over and over again is Swimming Upstream by Mary Oliver. Pretty much anything from Mary Oliver, if you're thinking about just great prose or poetry. Oliver Sacks is somebody that I love just reading his essays. I just feel like they're timeless. And currently, right now, I'm reading um, Jaya Prasada's book, uh, Sri Siddhi Ma, which is the story of Siddhi Ma, the devotee of, devotee of Maharaji. And so it's just so sweet reading that story. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here. It's been lovely talking to you. I appreciate you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Weave Your Bliss podcast. We hope it was inspiring for you. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a comment for us. I want to thank the team at Team Podcast who helped get this podcast out to you. And also to thank the musicians who were the creators of this beautiful music we're listening to now. It comes from an album, Fragments of a Season, by Alexis Georgopoulos and Jeffrey Cantuladesma. So check it out wherever you get your music. Have a wonderful day, and we will connect soon on a future episode.